Well, turn and greet your neighbor around and say hello to them as we say hello to those of you that are watching online both now and maybe later on. That's the wonderful thing about the streaming. We're glad that you're all here tonight. Glad I'm here tonight. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I'm glad I can talk tonight. I had some dental work done this afternoon. And this whole side of my face was numb. So I was going to have to talk out of the right-hand side of my face, which lawyers are good at doing. (laughs) Actually, they talk out of both sides of their mouth. So praise the Lord. Well, welcome tonight. We prayed, and so we're going to get into this teaching. Uh, We're still in this series, which we started on Sundays and then went a few weeks ago to Wednesday nights on Renewing Your Mind 2022 version of this. I used to teach this... Uh, every year in school of ministry when we had that, and then uh, this is the third time I've taught it on a Wednesday night, I think. Um, and it's life-changing as we will receive it. And I've been pleased to get feedback from people that it's really beginning to get in them and to impact them, and that should be no surprise. This is what God's Word has ordained for us to do, and tonight we're going to talk about an exciting component of this. And I mentioned last week, I think, that there was a, a new segment of this that I felt the Lord wanted me to get into, but I had forgotten to look at my notes. There was one more section to talk about, so we will do that next week. So let's go to our, our, our main scripture, which is Romans 11, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and again, we've talked about this before, the first 11 chapters of Roman, Paul is outlining in detail what these mercies are. And the first response would be to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Later on, or another letter, Paul says, don't you understand your bodies, not your own? You were bought with a price. You're, he goes and says in other places that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And my goodness, would we treat it differently if we really believe that, that we have a responsibility to take care of it. Verse 2 gets to, deals with the other part, major part of it. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, demonstrate what is the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. And we've talked before that, that God is, has, has designed us in such a way that He is, when you come to Christ, God has put in you His nature. Peter talks about that in, I think it's First Peter. He's put in you His nature. And the key words in this verse are, do not be conformed. So it's what we're not to do. The word conformed, as we've talked about, is the word that means to be pressured from the outside, molded by pressure from the outside, so that your outside of you looks just like that mold or that pressure. So we said each week that that Satan couldn't stop God from coming inside of you. So the next best thing he tries to do is to keep that change from affecting anybody else by keeping it bottled up inside of you and through the pressures of life, through the pressures of our circumstances, through the pressures of the world around us to mold us on the outside so that we look look just like the world, talk just like the world, and that what God has put in us never gets out and makes any difference. And unfortunately in this generation, Satan's been all too successful at that. But we believe that's, that's ending. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the word transformed is a different Greek word, which literally means to take what you really are, your nature on the inside, and to bring that 
to the outside, and that fits in with Philippians 2, where Paul says that, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The word work out doesn't mean to earn, it means to move it from the inside to the outside. And then it says, for it's God at work in you, both the willing to do His good pleasure. And what's at stake is your, God wants to use your life to prove the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God, to demonstrate, use your life as a trophy, as an example to the world around you, to, in your world around you, of what God's grace and love can do in somebody like you and somebody like me. So there's a battle going on. We've talked about this before. Let's put the first slide up. This is, again, a very quick review. The left side shows what just a sampling of what God has done, has put in you when you came to Christ. When you were born again, God changed your inner nature to be like Him, and that's what that left-hand column is. The right-hand column is what's showing up on the outside. And the arrow in between shows that the transfer from the inside to the outside, according to Romans 12.2, is by the renewing of your mind. And we saw why that is so critical, because your mind is the gateway of what goes into your, into your heart and what comes out of your heart. So what your mind thinks, the Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. So put up the next slide, if you would, please, which is a very quick review. And we saw that God has made us, there's two realms of existence that the Bible talks about. There's the spirit realm where God lives, the realm of eternity. And when you're born again, that's the part of you that's changed. God changes your spirit, man, the real essence of who you are. And that spirit man lives in a body. The body is made of this material, natural realm. And those two realms cannot have a natural communication or contact with each other. So God's solution to that is to give you a third part, which is your soul. And your soul is the part of you that bridges between your spirit man and your physical body. And your soul is made up of three parts. So there's three parts to you. There's three parts to your soul. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. So put up the next slide. I think it was the third slide. Yes. So what the center of your soul is your will, because that determines, and we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, that determines what you will do. That determines what you will say. That determines what you will hear. It determines everything about it. You will not you will not receive anything that's contrary to your will, and you will not act in any way that's contrary to your will, which is why God has to be at work in you both to change your will, and Satan is working on you from the outside to change your will. So this simple diagram shows that God wants to get at your will, Satan wants to get at your will. They use very different means because your will determines what's going to come out of you, and that's what influences and affects the world around you. So there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on for what you will do. There's a battle going on for how much of what God has put in you is going to come to the outside and affect other people. Satan's trying to keep it inside with pressure. God's trying to bring it to the outside by the working of his spirit. And the battle for that goes on in your mind. The battlefield is your mind, but the battle's for for your will. So this is basic stuff we've talked about, but it doesn't do any harm to go over it again. 
And then we've covered some other things. We've covered how the mind works, not in terms of some scientific, physiological method, but in terms of what the Bible says. And the Bible says your mind works in patterns of thoughts. So the basic thing your mind uses, and very important for what we're learning to do, is thoughts. But those thoughts then get collected together by your mind in images, and they formed images, and your mind is designed by God to try to draw meaning out of everything that it experiences. And so, so the, the way you connect these thoughts together form images, and those images affect you. So an image of something, if you see an image on TV, or an image of some horrible scene in a movie, or a horrible scene on the news, that has an effect on you, whether you realize it or not. Some of you may have an immediate reaction to it, and others it gets implanted in you, and it can begin to form a larger image. And this is where fear comes. Fear comes by little thoughts that get in you that are never dealt with, and they begin to collect together and form an image of what's going to happen to you. And I've used, I mean, for years I struggled with uh, dealing with fear of what could go wrong in my body. And my parents were professional hypochondriacs. So I was raised with that kind of mentality. So I I remember, (laughs) remember one time I had my physical in the middle of the week. I come home on Friday evening late and there's a message with four cell phones a message on the on our answering machine, it was my doctor's office asking me to call him first thing Monday morning. That's all it said. But my mind took that simple fact and began to project it. And it wasn't long before I had a picture of me in the hospital with tubes coming out of me. And all I knew is they wanted, what they wanted to do is confirm some information. But my mind was geared that way because I had not renewed it at that point. This was years ago. So your mind is capable of imagining things, and then if those things are imagined long enough, they become a stronghold. They begin to control your life. And we're going to talk a little bit about about some of those, uh, some of attitudes about those tonight. And then we've talked about the process for renewing the mind. And the way you do that is to not tear down the old strongholds. You replace those with new ones that are based on God's Word. So the way you create a new stronghold is by creating new images. And the way you create new images is by putting new thoughts in. So instead of just letting Satan pour thoughts into your mind or random thoughts coming in, this process of renewing your mind is an intentional purposeful process of choosing the thoughts you're going to put in your mind that are going to begin to form images that will eventually form strongholds. And it's much faster going this way because God's Word is anointed for that very, that very purpose. And then last week, we looked at some of the practical tools to help you intentionally show those, sow those thoughts in your mind. Tonight we're going to change gears a little bit, but something that's very, very important when it comes to renewing your mind. Because what renewing your mind is really all about is bringing the change that God made on the inside to the outside. So in order for your, your mind to renew so that the beautiful things that God has put in you, the love, the peace, the joy, all the fruit of the Spirit, the power of God that's on the inside of you, the authority of God that's on the inside of you, in order for that to begin to come out of you and flow out of your life and affect other people around you, you have to go through some change. Because renewing your mind is involves the process of change. 
And so we're going to take tonight and we're going to talk about the attitude of change. Because you can put all the Word of God in your heart, all, you can sow it all in, you can do everything we talked about last week religiously. But if you don't deal with change in your mind, the attitude of change in your mind, it's going to get stuck. It will not work. So it's very important to understand the attitude that's needed to be able to facilitate change, or what I call is the attitude of change. And this, this helps us to cooperate because the process requires change. Now, what is an attitude? Well, we've all talked about people, this person's got an attitude. There's somebody I work with, not here, but you know, somebody you can work with, that guy, that guy has an attitude. Boy, you just don't want to talk to them, and they've got an attitude. But what an attitude really is, is a predetermined way of looking at something. An image that you already have of what you already assume is going to happen when you get into that situation or meet that person. And I'll give, you, I'll give you an example out of my own life. And it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, except I've shared it enough, so it's out there. Um, I, was, I was born up in Maine. I was raised in, outside of Philadelphia and spent the last 40 years, of, except for about 40 years, uh, between Boston, central Massachusetts, and here. So essentially, I have lived most of my life in the Northeast, or from people in the Midwest would even think Philadelphia's in the Northeast, but... Uh, we know that's not true. Um, but, the, but I developed a mentality, an attitude, and I'm, I'm not proud of it. I developed an attitude towards people that were not, let's put it this way, were not from the Northeast. And it came out this way. When I was an early Christian, one of my good friends actually led me to the Lord, was going on vacation with his family. I was driving him to the airport, and in the tunnel leaving Odelovan Airport, their car dies. So they, they call a cab, and i got to take the car somewhere, get it fixed, and then leave it back at my house until they get back. And as he's leaving, he's saying, oh, by the way, because they were going to be gone a week, there's some tapes in the back. This was back when we had cassette tapes. There's some tapes, cassette tapes in the back you might be interested in listening to. I said, okay, sure. So we get a car taken care of. They go off, make, get their plane. So the next weekend, that weekend, Anita's away. She's visiting her children, her folks uh, in Ohio. With, at that point, we only had two children with our son Christopher and our daughter Emily, and they're out there. And I'm sitting alone on July 4th weekend with nothing to do, and I remember these tapes. So I go out to get the tapes, and I pick them up, and my first thought before I pick them is, I sure hope it's not that guy with a Texas accent that I've seen on TV. And sure enough, it was Kenneth Copeland. And the moment I heard, listen carefully, the moment I heard his accent, I tuned him out. Because my attitude is, this is Northeast educated pride, the attitude is, with that kind of accent, you're not very educated or you're not very intelligent, and therefore, I tuned him out. Now, Fortunately, I didn't allow that to interfere because I kept listening to him and listening to him and listening to him until I broke through that attitude. But that attitude, the moment I heard the twang in his voice or whatever it was, I had an attitude which determined ahead of time what I thought of him. And so attitudes are a predetermined way of looking at something that influences or affects 
how well you can receive what's being said to you. So when God's word begins to plant in you new thoughts about you, about God, or about other people, and you have an attitude that's going to interfere with how well that word is going to work getting down in you or eventually coming back out of you. Actually, Jesus uses a different example. In Mark chapter 13, we're not going to turn there because it's too long, but it's worth a whole series. It's the parable of the sower. And, and there's a very powerful lesson. In fact, I think it's in Luke's version of it or maybe it's Mark's version of it. Jesus says, and this is, Jesus said this. He said, if you can understand this parable, then you, you have the keys for understanding everything else I say. But if you don't get the meaning of this parable, you won't be able to really understand everything else I said. And the parable, of course, is this. There was, there was a sower, there's seed, and then there's soil. And the sower sows the seed. The first seed falls on the road. The second seed falls beside the road where the soil is very thin. And the third seed falls on ground that has depth to it, but it's full of weeds, it's full of thorns. And the fourth seed falls on ground where the soil has been well cultivated. The first seed, when the sun comes up, in fact, it doesn't even come up, the birds come in and they steal it. And that represents... The birds of the air represent Satan stealing the word out of your heart. The second seed that fell by the road where the soil was, 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 had no depth to it, it takes root and begins to grow, but because there was no depth to the soil, when the, when, the, when the crop begins to grow, there's no way to get the water when the sun comes out and is hot and burning and, the, and it dries up because the, there was no depth to the soil. The sir, third seed that fell out in the deeper soil, but there were other things, there were weeds and, and thorns and thistles and there were rocks in there and other things that were competing for the nutrients. So it did produce something, but it was, it was defective fruit. And the fourth seed fell on ground that was where the soil was, had depth to it. There was no, nothing, no weeds growing in it and produced a crop 36 and 100 fold. So most of you are familiar with the story. Now listen to what the story says. It's the same sower and Jesus explains, that's my father. It's the same seed and Jesus explains that seed is God's word. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about using God's word to change the images that are in you and eventually produce new strongholds. So the, 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 the tool we're using is the Word of God. And the reason we're using that tool is that Word of God, we talked about this last week, is the power of God to produce itself. That Word, what God says about you, that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, the same authority is in that Word that created the universe. So this word is God's word with all of God's power and authority and that word when it gets in your heart has the power to produce what it says. So that's the word. And it, so that's the word. So the sower is the same sower in each case. The seed is the same seed. So the, the, the image is this, the sower reaches in the bag and scatters it like this. So it's coming from the same bag. And it's scattered, and some of it produces, doesn't even take root. Some of it 
can't stand the heat of pressure. Some of it produces something, but it's defective, and other produces a full fruit. So there's, a, there's four different results, but it's the same seed, and it's the same source. So the only variable, the only thing that's different is the condition of the soil that the seed is sown in. And Jesus makes clear that the soil represents the condition, the openness, the attitude of our, of our heart. So Jesus is teaching us that when I speak the word to you, the seed is being sown to you. And the, and the attitude that you have towards me, in fact, there's great examples of that, Jesus goes into his own hometown and they want to know, where well, you're going to produce the miracles that you had here, and yet he can't. Mark Gospel says he couldn't do any mighty works there. Why? Because their attitude, this is just Joseph. We saw this kid raised. We know his parents. We knew Mary and Joseph. We saw this as little Jesus. Their attitude towards him kept them from receiving literally the word himself. The Pharisees had an attitude. Their preconceived idea of what the Messiah was going to be, who he was going to be, where he was going to come from. They had preconceived ideas of how you should, how you should serve God. And what he did didn't fit in with that, so they could not receive the word, literally the person of the word. So our attitudes are critical. Our attitudes towards this word are critical. Now remember, we're going to be using God's words as our thoughts to renew our minds. So the attitude we have is very important. Now look and think of this in mind. God has done everything He can. By the way, these notes have been posted, so you can get them if you want later on. God has done everything He can. Listen, God has done everything He can. God, the creator of the universe, has done everything He can to enable change in you. God has done everything He can. He's put His nature in you. He's put His own spirit in you. He's given you His word that's anointed by Him. And now we live in an age where we have access to it 24 hours a day on our phones, on our, wherever we are. We have access to that word. He's defeated our enemy and given us authority and yet we determine how much help he can give him and it's the attitude we have that affects that so the attitude we're talking about is the attitude about t- towards change <laughs> I was uh, in the dentist chair today and they were numbing me and doing putting a bunch of hands in my mouth and um, I kept thinking, well, my mouth's not very large, but the people in our congregation thinks I got a big mouth. So anyway, my wife laughed a little too hard at that. <laughs> and and I, was exp- I was asking him, am I going to be able to, to speak tonight? He said, well, do you, he knows what I do. I said, well, I've got a, a base of teaching something tonight. And so the, the, the nurse asked me, you know, well, well, what's it on? I said, well, I don't want to get into renewing the mind. They wouldn't understand that. I said, I'm going to teach on the attitude of change. She said, I hate change. I said, that's exactly the attitude we're going to talk about. (laughs) All right. So we're going to talk about certain aspects of change and the attitude that we have towards change. 
The first thing is the desire to change. This is going to sound so basic and simple, but it's not. It's vital to lasting change. Remember we learned this principle. We just talked about it again. Your will determines what you will do. So there are things you may want to do that you yet haven't willed to do. You may want to lose some weight, but you can want to do it all you want. It's until you will to do it that you will actually lose weight. So you want to know what you've willed to do? What you're doing right now. In any area of your life, you're living what you have willed to do. So there's a difference between what you desire, what you want, and what you will. What you will, what your will decides determines what you will do. And it's important at the beginning to determine exactly what you want, what you will to happen. And, and here's, here's why I'm talking about that. Because we're talking about change. And some of the change may not be fun. Well, let me put it a little stronger. Some of this change may be uncomfortable. Some change may be painful. But God loves you enough to make you uncomfortable in order to change you. I heard it said this way, and I've heard other people teach it too. Very common expression, well, and I I've saw this on outside some churches with some multicolored flags, let's put that this week. This is, God loves everyone. God loves you just the way you are, is what it is. That's true. God loves you just the way you are. But God loves you too much to leave you just the way you are. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about, don't you remember that as a father, a father will, because of your father loves you, he will correct you. And because God loves you, he will correct you. And then he talks in there about the attitude towards that. And around verse 7, he says, if, the language in there is a little different in the different translations. But actually what it says, if you will allow God to correct you, then you're allowing God to be a father to you. And he goes on to say that, that, that he said, you've had, you've had good fathers, not, not all of us have, but you've had good fathers, and they correct you for a short time, for a short purposes, but the Father of Spirits will correct you to holiness. So he's working in you, but part of his working in you is to bring correction, and correction requires sometimes changes that we don't want to make, and he'll work on you. In fact, in Hebrews 12, it outlines a pattern. God, first of all, will work with you with His Word. Then He'll work with you with some pressure. And if He has to, He'll work with you by a spanking. <laughs> the Greek word is mystigo. He will, he, will, he will bring pressure on you because He loves you to bring about that change. So, so to do that, it's important to determine what you really want to change. And here's why. This is so important. And this, we, we run into this in counseling. I know, Pastor Michael, you see this a lot. People come to us, and they're asking for our counsel, they're asking for us, but they don't really want change. What they want is comfort for where they are. They want to feel better where they are. They want to get some hope where they are. But they're really not ready to change. And what I very often would do, I don't do very much counseling anymore, but I would give them homework. 
Because a lot of times they would come in and they'd pour out all their problems. This is da 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 And they're sincere. You listen to them. And then you, what you want to know is, well, what do you want? What is it you want? And, and some, a lot of times they're not sure. What they're really looking for is relief. They're not looking for deliverance. Put it, put it another way. You can't have sympathy and deliverance at the same time. I'm not being harsh, but if you want sympathy for where you are, you're going to stay where you are. Because in order to be delivered and set free, you've got to get rid of the sympathy. It's like being sick. Child learns early on. If I'm sick, I get to stay home from school. If I'm sick, I might get to watch TV today. If I'm sick, I don't have to take that test. If I'm sick, and they may be legitimately sick, but they begin to realize there's some benefits to being sick. And those benefits can affect how much you really want to be well. Let's bring that into an adult situation. You've got a condition in your body that provides some kind of disability, and it affects your life. You may, have, you may get people that give you extra help. They may give you extra attention. But in order to be healed and set free, you're going to have to be willing to let go of that special attention and those special benefits. Well, of course I want to be well. Well, but very often people don't know what they really want. So you've really got to ask God to show you. Maybe the thing you've been believing for and asking God for, you don't have because down inside you're not sure you really want it. I remember counseling a gentleman that was here years ago and I kind of was mentoring him. And a very bright guy, highly educated. And uh, he, was, he was looking for a job in, in a highly technical field. And he's so frustrated. He would put his resume in, he would go for interviews, and he would come back, and they say, boy, we love you. And like four or five times, somebody else got the job. And he said, I don't understand this. I'm having good interviews. And I, I just felt in my spirit to ask this question. I said, you need to search your heart and ask God to show you, do you really want those kinds of jobs? Because they're going to require a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, they're going to require more. Do you really down in your heart want that job? And he prayed about it and realized, you know what? I really didn't have that strong a desire. And he made the adjustment in that desire and the next interview he got, he got a job. So what do you really want? Do you have a desire to change? We talk about this. I want to be the. I want to have. I want to. I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more compassionate. I want to be more sympathetic. I want to be more loving. But there are things that come with that, inconveniences. Do you, are you? Do you really want that change in your life? Because if you're not really not willing to do it, then you won't, and you'll get frustrated because you'll do all the right things but it won't work. Good preaching, Pastor John. Thank you. I'm so glad you said this tonight. <laughs> Another example is, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. If I, Somebody gets up and gets getting dressed to come to church and they make the mistake of looking in the mirror and they don't like what they see. 
So they're angry, they're frustrated because they see a little extra weight where they should, don't want to have extra weight, and they get frustrated, I'm going to lose five pounds. And they determine, I'm going to lose five pounds. And then when they go on that diet for the first week, they may keep to the diet. The second week, they slip a few times. By the third or fourth week, they're back doing what they did before. Why? Because their motive really wasn't to lose the weight. What was motivating them was they were angry and frustrated and embarrassed at what they saw in the mirror. They weren't, had not determined to lose the weight. They were reacting to what they saw, and that won't last. We're talking about lasting change. They're motivated by guilt, anger, disgust itself. And as soon as those motives subside, their will to diet will end. Their motive was not to change, but to feel better about themselves. Uh, Luke chapter 18. Great example here. I don't want to spend... Okay, thank you. Now, here is a, 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 young, a, a young ruler in this, one of the synagogues. He comes to Jesus saying, Good teacher! What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I believe he's seer here. So he's talking about change, inheriting eternal life. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good but the one that is, and that is God. Okay. And here's Jesus' answer. He doesn't tell him what you've got to do. He brings him back to what the law says, God's standard. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So he's giving them the word. He's giving them the word. This is what we're talking about. Here's what the word says. And look at, the, look at his response. All these things I've kept from my youth. Now that's the impression he has of himself. The image he has of himself is he's a good ruler. The image he has of himself is, I have, I have kept all these things. That's the image he has of himself. And he's talking about change, changing to eternal life. So now Jesus is going to cut right to what he really wants. He's going to cut. Jesus had a way of doing this. <laughs> we were watching a series as a staff about, you know, Jesus often talked to people in a very unchristlike way. Because we think, well, Jesus is so understanding and so sympathetic. He blew people away because he cut right through to what really was going on inside. Why? So he could deliver and heal them and set them free. Jesus said, heard these things. He said to them, you lack one thing. Wow, how would you like Jesus to say, you just lack one thing. Sell, but here's what it is. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. There were not many people he told to come and follow him. He is giving him an amazing opportunity, but to do it, he's, this is an opportunity for a, a traumatic change in his life that can be called to do something for Christ personally. And he says, there's only one thing you need to do, and he's going to get right at the heart of the man's will. Oh, I'll do anything from God. I love God with all my heart. I've kept all the commandments from my youth. Great! One thing I say to you, sell all you have. Distribute the pure, poor, and come and follow me. Now notice Jesus doesn't say that to every one of his disciples. He deals with what's in this man's heart. He's getting at this man's will. Because the man was not willing to do this. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. So God, Jesus wasn't rejecting him. He was getting at the man's, what he really wanted. Okay, that's the first one. 
desiring to change. The second one is openness or teachability. Very, very important. All of us need to change. And you will only, God can only change you to the degree that you're teachable. What does it mean to be teachable? First of all, it means to admit that you're wrong about something. (laughs) And then you're willing to let go of what it is you were wrong about. Let go of being wrong, of not being right. It's a willingness to let go of what you built into your thinking in order to receive what God wants to do. It's a form of humility. It's interesting. I was thinking today, there are two men in the Old Testament that are remarkable. Well, there's more than two, but there's two that are remarkable in, in a particular way. They learned to live beyond the law. Moses. I mean, the tabernacle of of, of the wilderness of Moses was set up so with such rigid regulations, such rigid regulations, that if the high priest, if the priest did something wrong, didn't do it just the right way, they could die on the spot. Details of how you come into a certain room. And the high priest could come only into that innermost room, the holiest of holies. On the Day of Atonement, having performed certain rituals, having taken enough, gone through certain things, and then if he came in the right way, he could come into that presence of God for a period of time. But Moses could talk to God face to face. Moses wasn't limited by those by those rituals and by those clothing. Moses had a relationship with God that was above the law. But Moses was the most humble man that lived at the time. The other one I think about is David, King David. King David developed a relationship with God that was beyond the law at the time. He could talk to God out in the wilderness. He could talk to God in his home. He had a heart for God. And God, see, God will meet you where you are. He, they, were, they, were, they were living in the era of the law, an era of the law, but because their heart was open to God and humble, they could meet, God could meet them where they were. So we put the limits on where God, how much of God we can have. It's the opposite of pride. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7. I love this. is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Paul's giving his own testimony. He just finished talking about what his, what his, his, his resume said. I'm, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And when he considered the law, I was, I was the best at it. But what things were gained to me, what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss. His reputation, his knowledge, everything he had that was of value to him, he counted all things as loss for the excellence of the law. Just what the New King James says. But that word excellence 
means more than just what you would think excellence means. It means a surpassing value. In fact, the New American Standard says that. For the surpassing value. It's a value that exceeds whatever he gave up. And what it exceeded? The knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Just imagine Paul on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, this is Paul, one of the most learned men of his age, certainly among the the, the Jewish intelligentsia. He studied under the leading rabbi, Gamaliel. Brilliant. Well, you know he's brilliant because we just read his writing. Even Peter says at one point, you know, some of the things Paul writes, I'm not sure I understand. Brilliant man. Full of authority, full of conviction, full of passion, on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried and maybe executed. And on that road, at noonday, there's a blinding light and Christ appears to him and speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, which was his old name, why are you persecuting me? Paul's life is turned upside down. He's blinded. He has to go into the, into the city and he's, he sits and fasts for three days. He's, tr- his whole, he's trying to figure out what's going on. He has to let go. This is what he's talking about. He has to let go. He has to be teachable. He has to be able to let go of everything I've learned, everything I've understood, everything I've put my value in, my learning. I've got to be willing to let it go so I can receive what this is and who this is that is coming to me. So in order to change, in order for God to bring this change about in us, we have to be teachable. We have to be willing to let go of things we thought we knew, we thought we understood. I remember coming, one of the things that really has brought a dramatic change in my relationship with God was a number of years ago, and I remember right where I was when I did this. And I was frustrated. I just said, God, I love you, Christ, Jesus, I love you, but I, I'm not experiencing you the way I want to. And I was raised in a family where, where education was everything. Where, where uh, the, the more, my, mom, I went, my stepfather graduated from Princeton University with high honors at an age like, you know, 18, 19, very young, very bright man. I don't want to go, his, his life was a disaster, but he was very bright. So I was raised around that kind of atmosphere and that was the value that I was trained in. So that became the attitude I had, which is why I had the reaction to Kenneth Copeland's voice when I heard him. And so with all my education that I've had in philosophy and law and then studying the Word of God, I've got understanding of things that, that, that I began to attach my value to that I could understand these things, I could teach things, I could, I could see things in a depth, and I could, I, I, my value began to attach to that. And I remember one morning, prayer, in prayer, we were on vacation, and I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I would trade everything I know, every insight I've ever, you've ever given me, every understanding I've ever had, every, every revelation, I'd trade all of it to know you personally better than I do right now. And that began a change in me. It allowed the Spirit of God to begin to teach me, not information, 
but to begin to reveal Christ to me at a level in my heart that I hadn't known before. So teachable means you're willing to let go of the things you know in order to know something else. Let go of your value that you put on them. Open. When somebody comes to correct you, are you teachable? Or do you defend yourself? Because if you defend yourself, you're never going to grow. You're going to stay right where you are. If you rely on what you know, then what you know is all you're ever going to know. Because if you're not teachable, you can't get, there's no room to put anything else in there. So you have to be willing to let it go. It doesn't mean you give up things. I didn't lose what I knew. But I was willing to trade it. I, t- I let go of the value, just like, like Paul did. All right, we've got to move on here. Okay, the next one. So the first one we saw, you have to have a desire to change, a willingness to change. The second thing is you have to be teachable and openness. The third, which is very closely related to openness, which is truth. You have to be willing to receive truth. And this may sound off, of course, of course you do. But one of the real challenges people have in growing is they really don't, they're afraid to see, face the truth or the truth about themselves. But in order to grow, in order to change, we have to be willing to let God show us the truth about ourselves. By the way, He already knows. So when we're hiding from Him, we're not hiding from Him. And most of the time, we're not hiding from anybody else. The only person we're hiding things from is ourself. So truth. We're going to talk a little bit about, about truth. Um, John 8, verse 12. Jesus trying to bring the people along with Him. He spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of the themes in the Gospel of John is light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The Gospel begins with that concept. Light represents truth. Because what does light do? Light allows you to see what is real, what is real actually there. And I've used the example and I used it a few weeks ago where I misused it again, where I walk through this room without the lights on because I think I know what's there. And inevitably, like this week, two weeks ago, I walked into one of these chairs because I thought I was coming around the corner. But the smart thing is to hit the button over there, which call, is called walk-in, which turns on certain minimal lights so you can see what's actually there. And that's what truth is. Truth is seeing what is actually really there in you, in the world around us, in the Bible, who God really is. So we're going to talk about the attitude of truth, the openness to truth. So light refers to walking in the truth, seeing what is really there. Darkness is just the opposite. Darkness is when you can't see what's really there. And the danger of this kind of darkness is you think you see, but you don't. Jesus would say to people, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear with the Spirit. Well, obviously we have ears to hear. Yeah, but some people have ears, but not ears to hear. And he would talk to the blind, leading the blind. And they're falling. He's talking to religious leaders who thought they were so smart, thought they knew so much, and had no idea how blind they were 
to where they really were, that they were bound by sin. In fact, it got so bad at one point when Jesus said, it's in this chapter, he said, I've come to set you free. And they said, we're never, we, listen to this, this is the Pharisees, educated, we've, we are children of Abraham, we've never been in bondage to anybody. Now think about that. At that very time, they were under the bondage of Rome. They had a Roman governor, Pilate. At that very time, they had Roman soldiers in the streets reminding them that they were not free. And they had been captives to a number of different nations, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. (laughs) The whole book of Exodus was getting free from their bondage. So so they're so lost in their pride they cannot see where they really are, how, how bound up they really are. And Jesus comes to give them light, truth. So in order to allow God to bring this change in us, in order for God's Word to bring change in us, we have to be willing to walk in truth. John eight thirty one. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, these are believers, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are disciples indeed, verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we're talking about this freedom in the context of this course is bringing the freedom of who we really are on the inside to the outside. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to walk in truth. Because you see, when we begin to put God's Word into us, when we begin to put God's Word in our mind as thoughts, those thoughts are truth because they're God's Word. But we have to be open to allow those truths to shine their light in places in our heart, in our minds, there there may be darkness. Now, the greatest example of this really is the Greek word for truth here. The word truth in, in almost every place where it's word is the Greek word aletheia. You don't need to remember that word in particular. But what that word literally means is nothing hidden. What you see is what you get. It means nothing concealed. The reality is what you see. The appearance is what is real, real. The opposite of this is a Greek word hypocritos, from which we get hypocrite, which means you're portraying something on the outside that's different than what you really are on the inside. So aletheia means nothing hidden, everything exposed, nothing hidden. Now it's interesting, when you think of this example, and you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God created the man and the woman. And you know the story, God creates them, creates all the creation, then, then God creates this man, and then he pulls the woman out of him because he said it's not good for man to be alone. The man didn't mind being alone. God said it wasn't good for you. You needed somebody who's different than you, you've got to relate to. And that's another teaching at another time. And then it comes to the end of it, and the most powerful verse to me, one of, in that whole chapter, is the last verse, and it says, and they were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, get your mind out of thinking they had no clothes on, because that is what it meant, I'm sure, but it's deeper than that. That means, Remember, there's no sin at this point. They're walking in perfect communion with God. 
And in perfect communion with God, they're not hiding anything from Him. There's no reason to hide anything because everything's walking in complete obedience and love and openness to Him. They're a reflection of His love and glory. And by the way, that's what He wants to restore in you and me. This relationship, the whole Bible, from Genesis 3.15 on to the end, is God restoring what He had with Him in Genesis 2. There was nothing hidden from God and there was nothing hidden from each other. There was no shame. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Everything was open. And that's what that word means. We go into chapter 3 and things change dramatically. Because in 3, Satan comes in. And I have time to get into the whole story tonight. But he gets them, he tempts them to take their lives into their own hands and become their own God. Oh, they still love God, they still worship God, but He was now secondary to them. They were now their own gods because they were now ruled by their own understanding. So whatever God told them now, they would process through their own mind and their own will to decide how much of what God said they were going to obey and we still do that today. They disobeyed God's simple commandment. In Romans 10, it talks about this era when there was sin before the law and there was sin after the law. And Paul says this funny statement. He says, before the law there was no sin, but there was death. The consequence of sin was there, but there was no sin because they had not sinned in the likeness of Adam. Adam's sin was he broke a known commandment. Thou shall not eat. The law then, God gives a new commandment clear, concise, precise, where men could either break it, obey it, or disobey it. I didn't mean to get into all that. So, Adam disobeys God. The, the wife tempts him, but Adam's the one that sins. And the moment they do, fear enters in. And the next thing, next thing they do is they run and hide from the presence of God. So now there's shame... There's fear and there's guilt and they're hiding from the presence of God. And then what they do is they try to cover their own shame by their own works. So they cut up some plants, sow some fig leaves is what the stories say, around their private parts and they hide themselves of their, out of their own work. So they're trying to hide their shame by their own efforts. Self-righteousness. And God shows up on the scene. He says, Adam, where are you? It's not like God doesn't know. He's giving Adam an accountability. Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I've hidden because I'm afraid. Because I'm naked. He said, who told you you're naked? How did you come? They were so unaware of themselves, they didn't realize they had no clothes on. That's pretty being unself-aware. That's not a real word. But everything you and I struggle with, even as Christians, ultimately comes down to a consciousness of self. And what Jesus wants to free us from is that, remember what he says? You come follow me. Deny your self. Take up your cross and follow me. 
The death, the primary death that we are in denial, that we are to do is denying self its right to rule over the real person that we are, that Christ has made on the inside of us. Oh, I've got to move on. Okay. So, the contrast, Genesis 2, open, truth, aletheia, nothing hidden. So when it comes to God's bringing change into our lives through the Word, we have to be open to allow Him to shine the light of His truth on us. And you can tell when He's starting to do that because certain scriptures make you uncomfortable. I don't want to read that book. I don't want to, I don't, I want to take that scripture off my refrigerator. It was okay before, but now it's bothering me a little bit. If it's bothering you, that's probably somewhere he wants to shine his light. But understand this. When God wants to shine his light on those areas, it's because he loves you and he wants to set you free. When God is asking you to put something aside, it's because that thing you're holding on to is keeping Him from having more of you and you from having more of Him. He's not trying to take things away from you. He's trying to give Himself to you at a deeper level because that's what drove Him to send His Son to the cross for you. And He's jealous, James 4 says, of everything that robs Him of having full possession, full presence in you because He loves you that much. He cannot stand to be separated from you. The cross is the ultimate proof of that drive. Genesis 1, uh, 1 John 1, 5. And this is the message what we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light, truth, and in him is no darkness at all. Keep going. If we say we have fellowship with him, oh God, I love you. I've come to worship you tonight. And we walk in darkness, we lie. God said we lied and do not practice the truth. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, in the truth, as he is in the light, then we're able to have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from all sin. The Pharisees were a great example of that. They denied that they had sin, and Jesus said, well, I can't heal you. If you're, if you're well, you don't need a physician. They couldn't receive the forgiveness because they wouldn't admit that there was sin. John 3.18, quickly, yeah, this will work. John 3.18 he who believes in him, this is right after John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him will not perish, have their last, God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but the world through him may be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, the truth, and the men love the darkness rather than the light. So as God's word is beginning to work in us, do we, wanna, do, we, do we love the light? Do we want that light to shine on every area of our life? Because they love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to let go of them. We're talking about the attitude of change. One of the biggest shadows of darkness that holds us back is excuses. We're hearing a whole series of our staff 
devotions about excuses. An excuse is a lie we tell ourselves to hide behind. Well, I can't do that. I'd never amount to anything. It's it's something that, that you think is a reason for something, but in reality, it's an excuse. My Bible says I can do all things through Christ. I can't do myself through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, I could never do that. I'm, too, I'm not smart enough. I don't have an education enough. What is it in your life that you're making excuses for where God's trying to bring change? Those excuses are a shadow of darkness that you're hiding in so that you don't have the un- go through the uncomfortableness of the change. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, so we've looked at, at the desire to change. We've looked at the being teachable or open. We look now at truth, being willing to look at, let the light of the Word shine in our light. The next thing is action. Ed Cole, who used to be a men's minister years ago, he had this very powerful phrase I did not like at all. <laughs> change is not change until you change. The desire to change is not change. It's the desire to change. The passion to change is not change. It's the passion to change. The information on how to change is not change. It's information on how to change. Understanding how to renew your mind is not renewing your mind. It's understanding how to renew your mind. The only thing that will cause your mind to be renewed is for you to do the process of renewing your mind. Change is not change until you change. James chapter 1. Really important verse. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's interesting, our granddaughter just graduated from a, a high school and their motto was it was, a, it was a parochial school is being doers of the word. I was glad to hear that. But notice this. Be doers of the word, but there's something you're not to be and not hearers only. And this is what as Christians we're very good at. Oh, it's a great message, Pastor John. Oh, wow. That really struck. That was a great message, Pastor John. And have no intention to do it. And we don't realize that. At the end of one of the chapters in Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel these amazing words. He says, Prophet, you're going to teach the people. And I'm paraphrasing it. And they're going to love everything you said, but they're not going to obey it. He said it's like, basically it's a modern translation of that was, it's like going to a great play and being entertained and saying, wasn't that wonderful? And you leave and it had no impact on you. And too many Christians do this. On, at least they come into church. They come to church and they say, wow, that was so good. And have no intention. Maybe intention, but intentions not change either. It's only when we begin to do what we hear. I'll say this. If you're struggling, say, well, I, wonder, I don't know why I don't have more understanding. Are you doing the understanding that you have? Because if you're not acting on the understanding that you have, why would God give you more? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Look at this. This is one of the most amazing statements about deceiving yourselves. There's enough deceit out there as it is in the world, in the news, but in the church too. But to do it to ourselves? And James is saying when we hear the word, 
and we don't do it, we are deceiving ourselves. Look at the next verse. If anyone's a hearer of the word, he's going to give us an example and not a doer. He's like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror and observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. I asked the Lord one time, I said, how is this deceiving yourself? Where's, where's the deceit in this? And the Lord said to me this. He said, when you hear the word, it has an effect on you. You feel either hope or courage or you may feel faith rise in you or you may feel good. Oh, wow. Oh, I, oh, I needed to hear that. And then we mistake feeling good because we heard that for the actual change. And this is why Christians get frustrated. I'm going to church, but I don't see the change in my life. And yet I enjoy going to church because you're hearing the word. It's having an, hearing the word will have an impact. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But faith without corresponding actions, James goes on and says in chapter 2, is dead. Faith without works is dead unless you act on what you hear, unless you act on what you believe, it begins to evaporate like the man's face in the mirror. So as this word gets in you, you need to begin to act on this word. Boy, this is really popular tonight. I know it is. Jesus, we, make, we mistake the intent to change for actual change. The deception is mistaking the good feeling or relief we get from hearing it to the actual change, freedom we get from change. <laughs> I don't like this in my notes, but it's there. Once you decide to change, God will show you something to do you don't want to do. <laughs> and then you have to decide whether you really want to change or not. Jesus, in this wonderful teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount, just the core of what heaven's, heaven's I've heard it described as, as the constitution of heaven. It goes through all these things and they all deal with the attitudes of our heart. They all deal with things we to do. They all deal with things that we are to change attitudes in our heart about, you know, praying for those that, that, that are your enemies and things that are radical. And he comes to the end of it and he tells a simple story. Here's another one of these simple stories. He says, there's two builders and they're going to build a house. Same plan, same architect, same materials, same design, same contractor. And they build the exact same house. One of them builds it on the sand and the other builds it on a rock. And the storms come and they beat against the house and the house that's built on the sand falls. And the house that's built on the rock stands. I saw that actually happen. My grandfather, when he retired, planned to retire, built his retirement house literally at the beach, not on the beach, but literally at the beach on one of the very southern parts of New Jersey. And I remember when he built the house, and what he did was the other houses around him didn't do, he had them take pilings like telephone poles and drive them down, because it's sand, drive them down into the sand, and then they bolted the house to those pilings. I was in that house 
when a freak hurricane hit. And we woke up one morning and there's water, the ocean, surrounding the house. And I watched houses next to us lifted up and taken out to sea. Why? Because they were built on the sand. My grandfather's house was on the sand, but the foundation was down on the bedrock. And Jesus says, the difference between these two houses is this. The man who hears my word and does it is like the man who built his house on the rock. The man who hears my word has a beautiful house, beautiful life, but he builds it on the sand. When the storms of life come, it will not last because he's built it on something that will not stand. So the key, Jesus is saying, to take the things that I've taught you and have them bring change into your life is being willing to do what I told you to do. And the last thing, quickly, those of you that have ever exercised or been to the gym know this pain, no pain, no gain. I don't like this one either. The last thing is willing to pay the price for change. This is what keeps most people from fulfilling God's change in their life. Because what they want isn't worth the pain that they have to go through to change. We looked, talked about Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews says that it's uncomfortable change when God brings correction into your life. But it produces, it produces something. It's an exchange. Exercise is an exchange. Obedience to the Word is an exchange. Sowing and reaping is an exchange. Everything in life is an exchange. You've been sitting there since we began exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide for oxygen. That's why you're still alive. Your body's functioning because you're exchanging something for something else. God wants to exchange His life for the things that are in you that are holding you back. God wants to fill you with Himself, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's an incredible statement. Do we believe that? God wants to fill you with all of Himself. His joy, His peace. So no matter what happens in your life, no matter what goes on around you, what will come out of you is Christ, joy, peace, and power and authority, the authority of God. The reason it can't be loosed on us is God doesn't have enough of us. That's what He wants to do. That's why you're here tonight instead of doing something else. Because there's something in you. There's something down inside of you that wants this change, that wants what he's talking about here. There's something down inside of you. And some of you, many of you, have been here over and over and over again because there's something down inside. why the Lord asked me one time, he says, why did you keep listening to those Kenneth Copeland tapes? Over and, when you didn't like him. And you argued with it. You were throwing scriptures back at him. But you listened to it over and over and over and over and over. He asked, why did you do that? Oh, why did I do that? He says, because somewhere down inside you knew you were hearing truth. And you wanted enough to work through all the obstacles that you had in your unrenewed mind. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. So here's the key that I found to overcoming that obstacle of pain. You decide ahead of time you're going to pay it. That's what marriage is about. We got married, we're 22 and 21 years of age. We knew nothing except we loved each other. 
wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. Had no idea what was ahead of us, and there's no way you can know. But what's held us together for almost 55 years next month, what's held us together through the storms and pressures that tried to destroy us many times, was a commitment we made 55 years ago. That no matter what, now if you've been divorced, I'm not criticizing you, I'm saying we made a commitment. And sometimes it doesn't work because it's only one person's commitment to work through the trials and tribulations. And there was one time it got so bad and we just moved down here and I was mad about something and I stormed out of the house and got in my car and that was the worst place to be because then God can talk to me. And he showed me this picture. He says, son, when you got married you made a commitment to each other and and to me and I made a commitment to you. And this is the image he gave me. It was like being, excuse me, Debbie, in a Volkswagen. (laughs) It was this Volkswagen, and the two of us were in there, and God had locked the doors. And it was like two cats in a room. He says, you're going to work this out together, or you're going to kill each other. There's no other option. And that turned things around for me. We have to work things out. So you thought our marriage was just so sweet. I said, no, we've had some real challenges that almost destroyed us. But the commitment we made ahead of time is what makes the difference. When you make the commitment ahead of time, God, I want to change. I'm afraid. I don't know how to do this. But I'm trusting that you will enable me to do it. And I'm ready to go with you. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, who God's put in you, to enable you to do that. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at the two major areas that we need to renew our minds to. Let's pray. Father, we've heard a lot tonight. And we've dealt, you've dealt with attitudes tonight, and those are so important. And I pray, Father, that the things that we've heard tonight, even for myself, that as we leave from here and go back home and whatever we have to do tonight and then get up tomorrow and whatever we have to do tomorrow and the rest of this week until we come back again, that the Holy Spirit will begin to shine the light of your truth into our minds and our hearts and will begin to ask us the questions that you already know the answers to of what are we willing to do. I thank you so much, Holy Spirit, because without you, we would be hopeless. You are the power and the ability of God to bring the change about in us, but you need our will to be willing. And so we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I assume, I can't see everybody here because it's dark back there. Is there anyone here that you've never received Christ as your Savior? I know most, you wouldn't be here tonight. If you are, let me raise your hand at me and I'll have you come talk to me. Maybe you're watching online, that's more likely. And you've never received Christ as your Savior. We've talked tonight assuming that you're part of the family of God, that Christ lives in you. But I was, if you're like me, I was raised in church my whole life. I was taught that Jesus is the Son of God. I was taught that He died to pay for our sins. I was taught to go to church. I did all those things. But I never had received Christ into my heart. I never opened my heart. It was never personal for me. I believed all these things, but I never received Him as the one that paid for my sins. It's personal. If you're watching tonight or even here tonight and you've never done that, I want to help you tonight by leading you in a very simple prayer. All you have to do is want this 
be sincere. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of instruction. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I put my life into your hands to be Lord. Fill me with your Spirit that I may live strong for you for the rest of my days. Thank you for loving me this much. Amen. If you pray that with me tonight, then I want you to do this. There's a phone number at the bottom of your screen. Write that down and call that number tomorrow morning because someone will answer that phone because we want to send you some free material to give you a better understanding tomorrow of what you've done tonight. And make sure you tune in next week or Sunday morning, especially because we're going to have a very special Father's Day message. So God bless you. Uh, if you were here tonight and you did pray that for the first time and I didn't see your hand, if you come up and see me afterwards or see Pastor Michael over here, we have that same material for you. We're going to stand together. I want to pray over our offering while we're standing. Father, thank you for the tithes and offerings that have been brought into this house, whether physically tonight or by online or however they've been brought in. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Our trust is in you. Our confidence is in you, Father. And we thank you that you are our source. We ask you to bless those that have sown into your kingdom tonight.